This program deals with themes of an adult nature and is intended for a mature audience. The very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. Our differences worldwide would vanish if we were facing an alien threat from outside this world. We must guard against the military-industrial conflict. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! The questions you always had. The answers you were never given. The place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. Headline edition, July 8, 1947. The Army Air Forces has announced that a flying disc has been found and is now in the possession of the Army. I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! The power they took from the people will return to the people. The Matrix is everywhere. It is all around us. It is the world that has been pulled over your eyes to blind you from the truth. Shall I tell you what I find beautiful about you? You are in charge of every best when things are worse. Sooner or later, though, you always have to wake up. Be skeptical, but don't close your mind. Greetings to everyone around the world, and a warm welcome to another edition of Veritas at VeritasRadio.com. I'm your host, Mel Fabregas. And I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time, please make yourself at home. I want to thank you, Veritas member, for making our truth journey a reality. Please subscribe at VeritasRadio.com to listen to all segments of tonight's interview and all of our material. And in addition to MMS, our USB drives with all our seasons and bonus material, we have added something new. Phyto vitamins. If you're taking the big brand multivitamins, you are taking a chemical cocktail. Phyto vitamins are 100% plant-based without anything synthetic. I could do an entire show about this, but just go to our website and click on the right side where it says Phyto vitamins. Feel the difference and find out. A health investment today will pay off tomorrow. Give them a try. And to get in touch with us. For member support, media inquiries, you want to be a guest or are a whistleblower, there's a link for you by clicking on the contact button of our website at veritasradio.com. There's a contagious psycho-spiritual disease of the soul, a parasite of the mind, that is currently being acted out en masse on the world stage via a collective psychosis of titanic proportions. This mind virus, which Native Americans have called Wetiko, covertly operates through the unconscious blind spots in the human psyche, rendering people oblivious to their own madness and compelling them to act against their own best interests. Drawing on insights from Jungian psychology, shamanism, alchemy, spiritual wisdom traditions, and personal experience. Tonight's special guest is Paul Levy, who will show us that hidden within the venom of Huatico is its own antidote, which once recognized can help us wake up and bring sanity back to our society. For this and much more, Paul Levy is coming up right now on Veritas. This is Neil Kramer, and you are listening to The Veritas Show. In 1981, Paul Levy had a life-changing spiritual awakening 
in which he began to wake up to the dreamlike nature of reality. During the first year of his spiritual emergence, he was hospitalized several times, diagnosed with having had a severe psychotic break. He was told that he had a chemical imbalance and had manic depressive illness. Fortunately, he was able to quickly extricate himself from the medical and psychiatric establishment. In 1993, he started to teach about what he was realizing. Paul has developed a unique and creative vehicle to introduce people to the dreamlike nature of reality that he calls the dreaming up process. Paul is a pioneer in the field of spiritual emergence, as well as an innovator in the field of dreaming. Paul is an author and has written a number of books. His most recent is titled, Dispelling Wetiko, Breaking the Curse of Evil. To learn more about Paul Levy and his work, visit his website at awakenindthedream.com. And directly from Portland, Oregon, I would like to introduce for the first time on Veritas, Paul Levy. Hello, Paul, and welcome to Veritas. How are you? Hi. Yeah, I'm just really happy to be here, Mel. So I really appreciate you inviting me on. Oh, it's my pleasure. And right from the beginning, Paul, I would like to thank our mutual friend, a very good friend, Neil Kramer, who really, really compelled me to get in touch with you. And I'm glad we finally connected. And by the way, he says you owe him a beer. Oh, okay. Well, that's great. I'll be happy (laughs) to do that. And Paul, I'm always curious to know what triggers people in doing what they do. So I know you had an experience in the early 80s. So why don't we start by learning more about Paul Levy. Give us some background beyond what I read uh, of who you are. Sure. No, that I, I really appreciate that because it's important to have like some sort of context in which, you know, to understand how I developed what I, what I talk about in my work. And basically, uh, the answer, um, is that I was going through intense, like this real deep sort of this suffering that was so overwhelming. And without going into any story, I, I'm, I'm an only child and it wound up that my father was really a very sick man and being the only child and being very sensitive, um, it created this enormous wound and trauma in me. And um, very quickly, so I was in my early 20s when this really began to happen. It was right when I began to individuate and to step out of just the family and, and step into who I was. And so that created this enormous wound, this suffering, and I quickly figured out that I couldn't figure my way out of the suffering with my intellect. And so the only thing that I was able to figure out that that in any way helped was to just stand back and to observe what was happening. And that's in a way, you know, to meditate. I was just really developing this witness consciousness, and that was the only thing, like I said, that in any way helped. And I did that more and more and more hours and hours a day. I had a teacher. There was a tradition, this, this, this Tibetan Buddhist tradition that I was connecting with. And then, um, after maybe, I don't know, 20 months, something like that of doing intense practice like that, I got hit by this, this bolt of, of this, you know, sort of this, a lightning bolt came And not from the sky, not like an external lightning bolt, but inside of my brain, just a lightning bolt just ignited for a nanosecond. And within 24 hours, I went into such an extreme state in which my subjective experience um, was that I was beginning to recognize that we were having a mass shared dream. And I, you know, went into this really ecstatic um, state it was as if I was on the cutting edge of um, the Big Bang in a way, and I felt unbelievably creative, but basically I had stepped out of my the typical conditioned self. And so a friend of mine who was with me, because I was acting so, you know, not in my typical way, thought I was having a nervous breakdown and brought me to a hospital. And um, and so that was, within the next day, was my first during that next year, a number of times, because I was having, you know, unbeknownst to me, once that lightning bolt hit, I had access this way deeper archetypal transpersonal energy that was informing me and giving me these deep insights into the nature of, you know, of the cosmos, really, and who I was and who we all are. But I wasn't in a container. I wasn't in an ashram or anything like that. I was just out in the world 
And because I was so uncontained in, in the enthusiasm and entheos, it literally means to be filled with spirit that I really, um, you know, I kind of upset the apple cart of consensus reality and of my family and friends. So maybe four or five, six times during that next, um, you know, uh, one year, one and a half year, something like that, I got um, put in psychiatric hospitals and told, oh, you have, um, you know, you're, you have this manic depressive illness. It's a chemical imbalance. And interestingly, the DSM-3 had just come out one year before, and that was the addition that came out with this newly discovered chemical imbalance. So I was told, oh, you have a chemical imbalance, and you'll have this illness for the rest of your life, and you'll have to be on medication till your dying breath. And I should just communicate, I haven't been on medication for over 30 years with, with no episodes. But at first, the energy was so overwhelming that I, I hadn't developed like the, the container within myself or like this, the skillfulness to creatively express what I was realizing in a way that wouldn't just really freak people out. So it's a whole story and I can go into it more. I'm happy. So at first I was really, I had this, you know, the shame around, oh my God, I've been diagnosed. I'm a, I'm a mental patient or an ex-mental patient. And then at a certain point, once I realized, oh my God, no, I'm going through a spiritual awakening and getting involved in this, like sort of this deeper, um, a shamanic process of going through an ordeal to potentially um, discover who I am, I began advertising that I was in hospitals because I, I was realizing so many other people are going through similar processes and in a tragic way get sort of entangled in the psychiatric system. It's like um, getting put under a spell and then you can get entangled in a way where you can't get out and then it becomes, and then you do become sick. Like I did become sick once I got fully entrenched in the psychiatric system and got pathologized and, you know, somebody in that state is in such a vulnerable, fragile state. When the reflection you're getting from the world is that you're sick, it makes you sick. And then once you manifest as being sick, it confirms in the psychiatrist's viewpoint the truth of their diagnosis in a self-perpetuating feedback loop that was really, you know, kind of evil in a way. And so little did I know that the whole seed of my work, the whole body of work that I've really created was encoded in these early processes. And um, so I'm really fortunate. I was able to extricate myself from the psychiatric system, you know, pretty early on. But the tragic aspect is that my family, my parents and my, you know, the relatives, they so bought in to the psychiatric point of view that I had this chemical imbalance mental illness, whatever, that both of my parents died convinced that I'm, you know, crazy and I don't have any, I haven't had a family now for close to a dozen years. I've kind of been excommunicated because I was the one who was picking up the unpopular, this voice of pointing out the abuse and pointing out the shadow that was coming through my father. And I couldn't believe it when I was doing that. I then became the one who was seen as evil or crazy and because I was speaking the voice that in a family system where there is like this abuse, there's silence is supposed to be, you know, kept. And I was breaking the silence and breaking a taboo and actually pointing out the darkness. And I didn't understand that, yeah, there's a non-local field that configures so as to protect the darkness. And so that was actually part of what I've learned and what I write about is that there's a non-local field that's informing all of manifestation and when you see that, that's when you begin to really have an expansion of consciousness. You know, I'm listening to you, Paul, and I know for a fact that many people who are listening to us right now are nodding their heads, thinking that once you bump into this awakening process, it seems as if the establishment, and we'll, we'll definitely talk about Watiko in, in, in a minute, mm -hmm. but it seems that society and the establishment is programmed that if there's people like you, like I, like Neil Kramer, like others who wake up and behave differently and question the establishment immediately, what's the word they use? Oh, you must be crazy. You are a conspiracy theorist. You need yeah, therapy. Yeah. You need medication. And it's almost as if it's part of the plan to shun you, to isolate you so that you can become part of the cancer as opposed to an anti-cancer cell. In your case, you extricated yourself from 
the medical and psychiatric establishment, a lot of people don't have the strength. They don't have the, the fortitude to be able to get out. What do you tell those people who feel that, yes, there must be something wrong with me because I, don't, I no longer see the world the way I was trained to, to look at it? Yeah, well, there, 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 there's a couple things, and I so appreciate the question. Um, you see, what got me through, my inner experience was so clear that I was having an awakening. It couldn't have been more clear. And, um, you know, so then when I was getting, when the psychiatrists were, were reflecting to me that I had a mental illness, you know, and there was one time particular, I remember I, they brought me in, I was locked up in a psych ward. They brought me in and there was a conference of all the psychiatrists in the hospital and they had all conferred and had a conference about me and had all, you know, were in agreement that I was, that I, you know, was mentally ill. And I just reflected back to them. I said, you know, you have no idea what you're talking about. You know, you're actually out of your mind. You're, you're, you're just, you know, ignorant and arrogant. And of course, you know, that just, you know, that just confirmed to them my mental illness that, uh, you know, I had the temerity to disagree with them. But the first, the first part of the answer is that. So I just knew, you know, um, you know, I had experiences, internal experiences that were self validating that I didn't need anybody else in a certain way to confirm. And the fact that I was able to just clearly, you know, to like have that recognition and to stay with my own experience and to not let anybody else tell me what my experiences were, that was really, really helpful. The second part of the answer would be it's really important to connect with other people who are also snapping out of the spell because when you do that, you know, then when you have like, you know, like um, some form of community who can actually reflect back to each other, the healthy parts of each other, the parts of us that are awakening, that that really has an effect on us. And that creates a bridge in such a way that we can more easily step into the healthy whole parts of ourselves. Absolutely. And I'm thinking again, how the system is, is designed this way so that you don't deviate because when you do is when you start questioning who we are, where we come from, where we're going. They want you to just not think, follow the script. And that's the way life should be to keep us divided, to keep us asleep. Yeah. And I want to say, you see where, so that was, you know, and we can go into that because I couldn't believe how that was happening. It was almost like as I was more transducing light, it was invoking these darker forces and the seemingly, um, you know, the external um, sort of world to, you know, to actually shut me down. But the point that I want to make is at a certain, at a certain point, I had the realization that what was playing out out there was a reflection of the very same process that was playing out in not only my psyche, but in all of our psyches. And what I mean to say is that there is this deeper process that when we actually connect with the self, with who we are, with our light, that, you know, it is, it, it, you know, um, it will invoke these darker forces. And that's not an error. That's actually showing us something about this deeper process that was the very experience that introduced me to the non-local field which is this physics term you know which has to do with that sort of informing and underlying all of this world um is a, is this non-local field and non-local means that it's not contained by the traditional sort of laws of third dimensional space and time and in physics it's it's really it's often described as the greatest discovery that's that possibly ever been made because the implication of if this universe is non-local what that means is that everything is connected with everything else in the sense that it, we trans the, the whole idea of separation is transcended and seen through and that's what i was beginning to see so the very forces that were trying to stop me were actually at the same time showing me something deeper about the nature of who I was and who we all are and the universe itself. And I was fortunate to be able to, because I was taking notes and drawing maps of what was happening. And yeah, I was almost destroyed by it and wounded so unbelievably. And yet, you know, I, because I was actually keeping my awareness and keeping my heart open, it was the inspiration for me to create my work. You know, sometimes bore the audience probably by by 
telling the story, but I remember the movie Midnight Express. I don't know if you ever watched that movie. Oh, I saw that movie. Totally. Do, do you remember the part where the, the, the main characters in this insane asylum part of the, the, the uh, prison and he starts walking against the circle and all the, the, let's call them crazies, were saying, no, you need to get come back to us. We are walking the right way. And he was kicked out because he was actually breaking the paradigm right there. Oh, well, no, I don't remember that part, but that sounds great. And Wetiko, let, let's dive right in to this powerful force. And I was telling you before, uh, during, during, uh, uh, before we started the show, that I saw a correlation between the war Wetiko. I mean, but, but why don't we just define Wetiko first? Sure, sure. So what Wetiko is, it's a term, it's, it's this, this, this Native American phrase, which very simply connotes the spirit, spirit of evil. And um, you could think of it as a cannibalistic spirit, as a transpersonal energy that actually can take over a person, a person, a person's psyche and the whole person in such a way that the person then becomes an instrument for the manifestation of Watiko. And it's a cannibalistic spirit in such a way that it takes from outside without giving anything of its own. So um, now it's a, one way to think of it because I, I continually um, try to describe it in as many in as many ways as I as I can imagine in the book. So it's a psychospiritual disease of the soul that exists in the collective unconscious of all of us, which is to say that we all potentially have it. It pervades the entire field in which we're contained. And so to say, oh, that person has Watiko and we don't, that perspective itself is an expression that we ourselves have fallen under the thrall of Watiko. And what it does, it operates through the blind spots of our psyche in such a way that we unwittingly become an instrument to act it out while at the same time it hides itself from being seen. And one other way of describing it, it's a form of um, this sort of psychic um, inability to see like this being blind. It's a blindness that, that not only does it believe that it's sighted, but arrogantly it believes it's more sighted than anyone else. And so the thing about Watiko, it works through the projective tendencies of the mind because we're always projecting, but Watiko sort of like plugs into the projective tendencies of the mind in such a way so that we then project onto the waking ink plot to connect the dots and then we be entrance ourselves so that we then think that what we're seeing objectively exists separate from us, which we then react to without realizing that the source of our experience is our own psyche. Okay. So another way of talking about what it actually turns the genius, our own intrinsic genius for creating reality in a way it turns it against ourselves such that it doesn't, not only is it not serving us, but it's killing us. So we have this genius for how we can dream up our life moment by moment via the creative imagination, which is, you know, which is like this sacred faculty that all of us have. But what Watiko does, it taps into that in a way that it, it turns it against us in such a way that we're, we're destroying ourselves. This is, a, this is a fascinating subject, and I, when I learn a new concept, I, I, I like to go forensically. So Watiko... Is this something that, that exists innately in ourselves, or does it arrive like a virus? Yeah, well, the thing I say, and you know, keep in mind my whole book is really going into this, yeah. is that it's, it's intrinsic into you know, who we are and into the nature of the universe, but from the ultimate point of view, it doesn't even exist. So if we think, if people hearing me talk about, oh, this new incredible discovery of Watiko, and keep in mind, I didn't discover it. The indigenous, all the wisdom traditions have discovered it and called it by different names. I'm just trying to translate it into a modern idiom that speaks to people because it's so pertinent to what's playing out in the world. And so it actually, it doesn't even objectively exist. So if we think, oh my God, there's this like virus of the mind and I have to be scared about it. And no, it feeds on fear, you know? And so, um, and if we're afraid of it, then we've unwittingly fallen prey to it. So it's important to understand it doesn't even exist. It's not separate from our own consciousness. And yet it has this virtual reality such that it can destroy our species. And that's pointing at something. That's pointing the fact that something that doesn't even exist separate from our own mind can destroy us is pointing at the incredible power intrinsic 
in our own mind that so you see the thing with Watiko just to complete you know your question about well what is Watiko in my book I actually contemplate again and again and I conclude encoded in the Watiko virus is actually not only its own antidote and this medicine but is a blessing that it's actually showing us something about ourselves it's pointing at our intrinsic power and it's actually helping us to wake up to the dream so watiko is a quantum phenomena and i say quantum just like what is the nature of like with uh you know photons light is light a wave or a particle well it depends how you observe it same thing with watiko is it the most evil virulent this you know this kind of parasitic this energy that can that is going to destroy our species, or is it going to wake us up? It depends how we observe it. It depends how do we dream it. That's really the solution. I, for some reason, in my mind, I'm, I'm putting labels into Watiko because it seems to encompass a lot. I, I, I see ego. I see psychic vampire. And I even see the word archons. Is there a correlation here? Yeah, what what the Gnostics call archons, they, right. they refer to the archons as these mind parasites that insinuate, that are these multidimensional entities, quote-unquote, that insinuate themselves into our mind in such a way that they subvert the nature of, of our creative imagination and of our mind so as to feed themselves. Yeah, that's what Tico. So you see that that's the Gnostics creatively describing what the Native Americans would call Watiko or the Hawaiian kahuna call Iipa. All the different wisdom traditions, some indigenous cultures call them, these are just, you know, a demon, Psycho psychologists would call them autonomous complexes. Every wisdom tradition have different names and symbol systems for pointing at this. You see, the thing about Watiko, it only has power over us and it'll have a seeming like an autonomy and power over us to the extent we don't see it. Because just keep in mind, I, I was talking about that it operates through the blind spots of our unconscious. So to the extent that we have, that we're not aware, that's the extent that this Watiko virus, which actually doesn't even objectively exist, has power over us. But to the extent you see what I'm trying to do with my work is by finding the name, by pointing at it, by drawing a map, by articulating it, by shedding light on it, I'm outing it. I'm like saying, look, here it is. We can all see it. You see, if I could just tell, tell this dream and I tell this in the book, there was, I have, um, I had this one incredible dream. I have many dreams, but this was a dream the morning that two of my, I have these, these great, you know, these whatever, these, um, teachers from all over the world who I'm really, you know, very fortunate, um, you know, to have connected with them. And this was a morning that two of my teachers, uh, these Tibetan teachers were coming to visit me, um, where I live. And I got woken up by this incredible dream. And the dream was that me and a bunch of people were trying to find this vampire and we're looking for this, like this, this vampiric figure. And we're actually all chanting Bella Lugosi, Bella Lugosi. And then I see him, I see the vampire and I point him out to everybody else in the dream and no one else can see him. Okay, so that dream, why I tell that dream is that with my work, it's sort of like I'm like still having that very same dream in my waking life, but more and more I've developed the art, you know, the fluency and the ability to articulate the vampire that I'm seeing in a way that I can actually transmit other people such that they can begin to see it. You see, and as more and more of us see the way Watiko operates through the blind spots of our psyche and non-locally, how it explicates itself through the actual world, then not only do we take away its power, but we ourselves become empowered in the process. I think it impairs our awareness because if some are aware that they have it and use it, for example, a Bush, and you wrote extensively about this, and now I can say probably Obama too, too although he's a little bit, yes. his version of Wetiko is more palatable. And others who deny its existence, not to get religious here, but isn't there a saying by poet uh, Charles Baudelier that says the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he doesn't exist? Isn't this the same about Wetiko? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I, I talk exactly about that phrase. And, and yet, you know, the paradox of it is that, well, okay, that's true. The greatest, the greatest trick of the devil is to convince us he doesn't exist. And yet the implication of that statement is that, well, that means he does exist. But if we think he does exist, that itself is another ruse of the devil because he actually doesn't exist objectively. 
you know, if we think of the devil as existing objectively separate from our mind, like an entity that's separate from us, no, that is to fall under the spell of the devil, you know? The point is, is that the origin of Watiko is our own psyche, you know? And so it's so interesting because we can't figure out Watiko, you know, through the workings of the mind. We can't figure it out with our intellect, and yet it operates through the mind, okay? And the thing about it, it's, it's the instrument of the mind that we have to, and the psyche, to actually contemplate Watiko, but Watiko operates, and its domain that it plays itself out is the mind, so it's a very, you know, psychedelic experience. When you more and more begin, you know, to see Watiko, you see, well, if I can just say one thing about this, sure. Watiko is a shape-shifting um, spirit that, in a sense, puts us on and that phrase, putting us on, it has a double meaning of putting us on like a suit of clothes, but putting us on also means fooling ourselves. So it's this tricksterish spirit that puts us on in such a way that if we don't see what it's doing, we then identify with its point of view, all the while imagining it's our point of view. And then we act on that impulse or belief or thought thinking we're just actually like you know, enacting our own perspective, all the while we're feeding the Watiko virus in us. One way to think about that is like a tapeworm. Watiko is a psychic tapeworm. Now think about a tapeworm. When a tapeworm gets into your system, it secretes chemicals into your brain such that you start craving food that feeds the tapeworm, all the while thinking you're feeding yourself. So it grows bigger and it'll eventually kill its host, which is you. That's the way Watiko, it colonizes the mind and sets up a shadow government inside our own psyche such that we become oppressed. Now, one other amazing thing about Watiko, you see, it is the most amazing phenomena because its origin is the psyche and, and yet um, it actually, in a non-local way, it, it synchronistically expresses itself through the medium of the outside world in such a way it's as if it configures itself out into the world and configures events to synchronistically express and reflect what's going on inside of the psyche, you know? And so that's where, when you begin to realize that what's playing out in the seemingly outer sort of, um, uh, the world is an actual reflection of what's going on inside of our psyche. That's to begin to wake up to the dreamlike nature because that's an expression of a dream. When you're in a dream and you don't know the nature of your situation, you don't know you're dreaming, you actually become entranced by the forms of the dream and react to them as if they're separate from you. And and But if you actually have the recognition in the dream of the nature of your situation, i.e., oh, I'm in a dream. This is all my own energy, all my own projection, all my own reflection. Then all of a sudden, um, you have, you've, you've woken up in the dream. And that's what I'm saying. That same experience of like having lucidity is available to us in the waking dream. And that dispels Watiko. I hate to say this, but sometimes I look at humanity. When we look at the planet, we treat it like as if we had another one to go to all the time, as if to, you know, we mistreated, as if tomorrow we had to leave here. So my question is, is Wetiko differently, operating differently in each person, or does, or does it operate as a collective, maybe even as governments or countries? Yeah, well, the thing, you know, it's interesting because when I wrote my book about the madness of George Bush, I, in the introduction, I pointed out, wow, what enabled me to see this was that the same, the same madness that was playing out through Bush played out through my father. But yet, mm. they were totally different the way they appeared. So the Watiko virus, I was realizing, and then I realized, oh my God, it's playing out in other people and it's playing out through different, like it incorporates itself through different, like institutions and it plays itself out, you know, in, in the, you know, in, through the, the collective, you know, because Watiko is a collective psychosis. So it plays itself out through like um, a number of people, through through like a nation, through a group, through our species. But it'll have a particular flavor through each individual person. So it's not like, oh, if you have, a you know, this, this illness, you know, the Watiko virus, you're going to always manifest the same pathology that other people who have it know. It's not like that at all it will actually, you know, um, express itself in a very particularized way, depending on who it's coming through. And that's one of the ways that it'll, it deceives people because then we can't, it seems like totally, there's no relation, totally different. 
Um, but yet when you see the underlying pathology, one, you see, here's another way I can have like an infinitude of ways of describing this. It's as if a pathological part of the psyche, and you know, we all have pathological parts to the extent that we're not fully, fully enlightened. And keep in mind, we also would have to have a pathological part because we're not separate from the field. And there's clearly a pathology that, that pervades the whole non-local field of consciousness that think about what's playing out in our world. And we're interfacing with that field. So of course, as shamans, we would have, we would pick up, um, you know, that mad part of other people or the field or our species. But it's like in Watiko, this pathological part of the psyche, it actually frees itself from the economy of the psyche and develops a seeming like sovereignty or autonomy in and of itself. And then it will literally take over the functions of the healthy parts of the psyche in such a way that it, it becomes invisible. You can't see it. And all the healthy parts of the psyche get subsumed into serving it. And that's just another way of describing the Watiko. Are there certain types of people, kinds of people, or groups that are more prone to, dare we say, accepting Watiko? Yeah, no, I, I so appreciate your questions because people who are really, who aren't, who haven't developed the capacity to self-reflect, who are open to just, you know, group think who hear like other people's points of view and just are open to like the suggestion of you know other people's way of seeing things so basically who aren't really connected with themselves they're the sort of people who easily can fall entranced by other people it's as if falling under a spell but it's if they fall entranced by the creative power of their own mind and so yeah particularly when you get people together in a group who actually are all under, you know, the particular spell and they have an agreement about the nature of reality. And then they actually reinforce each other's like, you know, crazy viewpoint in such a way that they feed off of and into each other's, you know, this, this, this craziness in such a way that then you could think of an impenetrable, like this bubble gets conjured up that, you know, any reflection from the outside world, any facts or evidence or self-reflection that's pointing at their craziness then gets perversely misinterpreted as like some sort of threat. And so when that's this bubble that's impenetrable that gets conjured up just around them. And what I'm describing is not only this group form of like this, this narcissism, but it's a collective psychosis. And one can see that in a family system in like, just, you know, people have relationships or one can see it in, in a particular group or one can see it in, in a political party, in a country. Um, one can see it, you know, in the global body politic in our species. And that's what's actually happening. And if we don't recognize these, something is being shown to us. And if we don't have the recognition of what's being revealed, we're going to destroy ourselves and we are destroying ourselves. What I'm pointing out is that something is being shown to us that it's most important for us to, to actually see. And once we see it, then all of a sudden, instead of being the problem, we become part of the solution. You know, I, I think things as you're talking that may not sound related to the subject, but for example, and this bear with me folks, but Unilever and Monsanto just created a new type of corn that's considered the contraceptive corn. And all it does is creates an antibody. If a, a, a male eats it, it creates an antibody and you don't produce sperm. If it's a female, it creates a layer around the, their, the eggs and it does not accept the sperm. An antibody is what Tico also almost like creating an antibody for the truth. In other words, we have to continue looking at the programming and not be able to be uh, awakened. Yeah, well, one, it's so, I just love this because the way I even describe that I go like Watiko, it, it actually, the Watiko virus, it actually thinks that itself is the antibody mm. to anything that's healthy in the psyche. So then it tries to destroy the healthy parts. But like the actual, you know, truth of it is, is that Watiko is the pathogen. And so you see, so what I'm saying, just taking that particular like symbol is that when, you know, as each one of us, when we, you know, really um, begin to wake up to the dreamlike nature and begin to see Watiko, we then become, in a sense, these, these T-cells in the greater body politic of our species. 
in such a way that as we more and more connect, we can actually heal this cancer of Watiko or the the archons or whatever word you would put on it, um, you know, and heal this this illness in the greater body politic. You know, I'm look I'm looking at the the definition that you use: malignant igphrenia or collective psychosis is there uh, where's the or- origin of of Wetiko displayed in the best possible way yeah well you know it's interesting because i just so two things one is you know so in my book on bush before i really i just had a paragraph about Wetiko because i didn't know that much about it but i was saying oh it's this very illness that i'm describing that my father had and that bush had and i i called it malignant egophrenia or me disease you know, me disease it's a misidentification of who we imagine we are and so then so that's that's you know it's just interesting because what watiko is it really is a misidentification of who we imagine we are if we think we're separate and um you know from the from the field or from each other that is me disease that is watiko so the the origin of Watiko, and I go into this in the book, is that, you know, some people think, oh, well, you know, there, there were these, like, these extraterrestrials, these, these um, you know, sort of like this negative ETs that came in and, um, you know, and corrupted our DNA or, or our species has been in trauma um, for so long. And, and all of that might be true. Um, but what I point out is that Watiko is this dreamed up phenomena. And what that means is that it's something that we're creating in this moment, in each and every moment, to the extent that we're unaware. And so then from that point of view, the idea of the historical, like, um, the origin of Watiko is not overly important because it's actually being created through us right now in this moment. And um, so that's very, very interesting, you know, because that's also pointing at that the way to dissolve and to dispel Watiko is also to be found in this moment. It's to be found in the psyche. And then you see the thing about Watiko, and this is really, really important, is that you can't see it if we're identified with the separate self, if we have that misidentification of who we're imagining we are and thinking we exist as an isolated entity that's separate from other people, we can't see Watiko. And not only do we can't, are we not able to see it, but then we're under its spell. But when you begin to snap out of the separate self and when you begin to see the non-local field in which we're all contained and that, that pervades everything and that's informing all of manifestation, that is to step out of the separate self. That's to see that this is some sort of mass shared dream. And so when you actually begin to have that more expanded vision of stepping out of the separate self, seeing the non-local field, seeing the dreamlike nature, that's when you begin to all of a sudden see Watiko. And then as you more establish yourselves in that perspective of, of that, which is really an expansion of consciousness, then all of a sudden you become an agent of real positive change. And one final thing about this, when people ask about, well, how can I protect myself from the pernicious effects of Watiko? There are a couple of things, because one is to the extent that if we think, um, you know, other people have it and I don't, like I was saying before, that's to fall under its spell. But when you realize, oh my God, like who among us hasn't fallen into our unconscious and fallen asleep at any given moment and acted out our unconscious in a way that could be potentially hurtful to either self or others, the, the point is we all have done that. And what that means is that any of us at any moment could potentially fall prey to, you know, the darker aspects of our unconscious. When you realize that, that cultivates this humbleness and that humbleness that's a real sort of like this immunization from the Watiko bug. But then ultimately speaking, the greatest protection against Watiko is to get in touch with the part of us because Watiko can actually, it's this daimonic energy. And I want to say a little bit about that in, in a little bit, what that word means, but it's a daimonic energy that can literally possess us. And then we act it out. And But when we get in touch with the part of ourselves that's not possessable, which is the self, the true nature, then when we're in touch with the part of us, that's the part of us that's invulnerable to Watiko's effects. And that's in a sense to really, you know, to like be victorious um, with reference to Watiko. Because if we're still fighting it, that's to fall into its hands. And because it feeds on polarization, then we've already lost. But when we get in touch with the part of us that's invulnerable to its effects, that's to really, you know, step into who we really are. 
I was thinking of that same word polarity. I think that it definitely has a a large it's a large component of Wetiko, but how about ego, which I think it's good and bad. It's a defense mechanism. Isn't taming the ego also taming Wetiko? Yeah. Well, the thing is, the ego isn't necessarily this bad thing. I talk about it in the book. It's like, in a sense, it, it, it evolved out of the self as sort of this spiritual transport system to help us to like actually, you know, remember who we are. And what I mean by that is that if we haven't developed a strong sense of ego, a strong sense of self, when we encounter these archetypal transpersonal forces in the psyche, we'll be overwhelmed and we'll just be subsumed into them and consumed by them and possessed by them. So we have to develop a sense of ego to actually have a separation and to actually have a relationship with these more powerful forces, the archetypal forces in the psyche. But then at a certain point, we have to step out of the ego because it's ultimately not who we are. But then the ego becomes really this poisonous entity when we identify with it and when we are unconscious of it and just, you know, when we have the identification with it, then we, in a sense, become inflated. We, we act out in a way that's hurtful. And, and then it just becomes a catastrophe. And then by identifying unconsciously with this, you know, with the ego, we just become an open conduit for the Watiko virus to like enter into us and to subvert our, our egoic tendencies even more. And then, then, you know, then we just become taken over by Watiko. I hate giving power to those who obviously are carrying the Watiko virus, but I look at the Amazon forest, for example. It's, it's the planet's lungs. Yet we have all these developers just completely cutting and cutting trees to the point that one day we're going to lack oxygen in, in this planet and we'll all will perish. How can the minority, which seems to be, you know, the people who are trying to save this planet, how can they fight Watiko in this specific scenario, for example? Right. No, that's a great question. And you see, the thing about what you just described in the Amazon, you know, the forest and, and how that's being destroyed and that's the lungs of our planet and that's going to destroy the biosphere, the life support system, mm-hmm. that itself is, a, is an externalization, is, a, is an outer reflection of the Watiko parasite of how it works inside of our minds, you know. So I, I just want to point that out. Now, um, and because the thing about Watiko, it's a, it's a, it's a self-destroying, it's an operating system that ultimately destroys everything within its sphere of influence, including itself in the end. Okay. And that's why our species, to the extent we're under its thrall, we're like enacting this, this, this suicide, this mass suicide, like this ritual, you know, in mass on the world stage. And, um, and that's why I feel like I'm so like, you know, in this earth with this urgency, really almost like primal screaming saying, Hey, something is being shown to us that through what we're acting out that can actually help us to wake up. Now, to answer your question, you see one of the ways. So what Tico will actually subvert the workings of our mind in such a way that now, if you think about it, think about people. There are some people who are really well-intentioned people. I, I want to just conjure up two classes. One are political activists. One are spiritual practitioners. So um, people who are these spiritual practitioners, they can have the best of intention and really beautiful open heart, but they can be holding a viewpoint going, oh, well, I don't want to get engaged. I don't want to put my attention on evil or get engaged in politics. I know that if I just connect with my own self – then the whole world will just reflect that back. And, um, and, and from one point of view, that's true. But from another point of view, that's this narcissistic point of view. Because I point out when you recognize that we're in a mass share dream, our inner process is manifesting as the outer world. And if we disengage from the outer world, we're disengaging and, and being in avoidance of relationship with part of ourselves. So with the best of intentions, people who are just, oh, let me just meditate and pray and not be engaged <laughs> in the world system, they're unwittingly feeding Watiko. Okay. It's, it's funny that you're saying that, Paul, because that's exactly what I wanted to say next, but I was trying to withhold it because I don't want to offend people. But just, just listen to me, folks, and don't get offended, but I'm just like you. I'm curious. Take, for example, the people, as you say, that profess that meditation and going within and, and sometimes literally, almost literally crawling under a rock and saying that everything is just fine and dandy. The opposite of someone who has a healthy degree of paranoia. Is that also considered what Tico in action, a, a level of narcissism? Yeah, no, totally. And I should, I'll give like an example. Like, so here, um, the city I live in, 
Um, there's the biggest metaphysical bookstore, I think, in the country is right here. Um, I'm not going to name its name. And I'm, you know, they're wonderful people. And I've been on their faculty for over 20 years. I give talks there and workshops, you know, and, um, and they will not even allow my new book on Dispelling Watiko in the store. Wait a second. I know the story you're talking about. Huge. They don't allow it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because in other words, um, they, they, it's kind of funny. Um, I mean, I have a friend who works there who tells me about what goes on behind the scenes and they just, <laughs> and they just think, oh yeah, we don't want to, you know, at all sell a book, um, that in any way is putting attention because they see, you know, oh, it has to do with evil. And they, oh, they don't want to put any attention on evil. They just want to focus on the light. And I, I point out, and I actually talk about this exact example in the book, by like one-sidedly just focusing on the light, they're, they're having an avoidance of evil. They're not, they're contracting against the darkness. And by doing that, they're unwittingly feeding the very darkness that they're contracting against, which is to fall under the spell of Hortico. And it's so archetypical in that it's like, you know, these are good people, but they're one-sidedly identified with the light, and they're then splitting off from the darkness, which they're then contracting against. Now, I point out that that's different than when you actually see the darkness – and you act, and that's what I'm pointing out in the book to see the covert operations of Watiko and to realize, Oh, I see you. I don't want to become fascinated by you because that's defeat Watiko. But now that I see the darkness, now being a sovereign being, I can choose how I want to invest my attention. And I choose to invest my attention in creating the world I want to live in. That's to dispel Watiko. Okay. And that's different than what this new age bookstore is doing, which being an avoidance of the evil is unwittingly feeding it. Exactly. And I think a large component of Tuatiko is polarity, but we cannot ignore that polarity is alive and well. It's like somebody has who has gangrene and is totally positive thinking, no, 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 there's nothing wrong here. There's health and there's sickness. And if you accept that fact, then maybe you can seek some help and cure yourself. Yeah, no, that's that's a perfect example. Like there are certain illnesses where, you know, if we don't become aware of them and treat them, they'll kill us. You that's know? right. And so, no, absolutely. So you see, the thing about what I'm talking about in my book is to make the darkness conscious, you know, that um, it's clear when you see this, this world as a dream, this evil is coming out from hiding. You know, it's not underground anymore. It's not in the corners. It's totally visible for all who have eyes to see. And I'm saying, yeah, the, you know, we can become enlightened as we want. It makes no difference if it doesn't help us to make the darkness conscious that that's what this is all about. And then we discover that encoded in the darkness is our own power, is a blessing that can actually help us to wake up to the dreamlike nature. And um, so if I can just get back get back to one thing, because I was talking about the spiritual, sure. the spiritual practitioners, but then I was saying the other group are like political activists who can be really, really well-intentioned and are reacting against the evil policies of, you know, of the United States government, whether it was Bush's policies, Obama's policies, it's all the same. And, um, and the point is, is that, but if they're reacting out of anger and hatred against the evil you know, even with the best of intentions, they're unwittingly by, by feeding the, they're feeding the polarization, which is the signature of Wojtyko. By So here, even the best political activists can be unwittingly like, you know, sort of these carriers of Wojtyko in their political activism. So what I talk about in my book is we have to cross-pollinate spiritual practitioners and political activists in what I call spiritually informed political activists, where the political activists are informed with spiritual awareness. And, and that's, that's the figure when we really synthesize those two perspectives in our own self that can really be of help, genuinely. And not to pick on the pick on the new age story you're referring to, but I see that if they don't want to have your book because they don't want to talk about evil, isn't that Wetiko personified? Because the fact that you want to ignore that evil exists, that's proof that Wetiko is alive and well there. Yeah, no, totally. I mean, Young Young talks about that you know that if you look at it just with open eyes if you don't have an ostrich policy with your head in the sand but if you just look at what's actually happening in our world that is clear that what we're calling evil um that it's it's you know it's incarnating in our world and um in a way i mean you know people 
who you know, it makes me think it's funny because there was one point a number of a number of years ago I ran into a to a friend who I hadn't seen for a while and he asked me what I was doing and I was saying at that point I was writing an article about the collective psychosis um, and he goes oh what makes you think that there's a collective psychosis and I was speechless I didn't even know how to answer him I I wanted to say well what makes you think there's not give me one reason that makes you think there's not but it's the same thing with like with the, with evil in that I mean it's all around us. And, um, you know, so it's something either people just have denial because, oh, if they try to deal with it, they get too depressed or they disassociate or they get filled with like despair. But, you know, there are some of us who, when I watch the, you know, every night I try to watch, you know, what's happening on the news to see how the propaganda is being presented, but also to see, to really become more and more intimate with what, how the evil is manifesting and what's happening because it inspires, it actually inspires me to greater heights of lucidity and inspiration. And that I think is somehow, I don't know, this capacity that I've cultivated. And I think it's important for those of us who really are able to, to open our eyes and to look at the darkness in a way where we don't disassociate. And, um, and like, you know, this beautiful metaphor that I want to bring in, in the same way that if you have a glass of water and take these, these grains of like this sugar and just dissolve one by one the grains of sugar in the water, it'll just dissolve and dissolve until the water reaches the saturation point. And then you add one more grain of sugar and this crystal will spontaneously materialize. In the same way, any one of us seeing, you know, our own shadow, seeing Watiko, seeing the dreamlike nature, you know, however you describe it, um, having a moment of insight could be that very grain of sugar that precipitates and catalyzes this global awakening in the entire collective unconscious of our species. And that, that is true. That's, that's the nature of this being this non-local world where we're all interconnected and, and all not separate. And that's really inspiring when, because you see, it's so convincing and seductive to fall into hopelessness and despair. And I talk about in the book that one of the strategies, I have a whole chapter on the, the tactics of Watiko. One of the strategies is to become pessimistic. And when we have a pessimistic point of view, then we're going to view the world pessimistically and draw evidence to ourselves that confirms our view point in a self-fulfilling feedback loop that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy and that's another way of describing what you go and i think it, apathy should, should always also be included there but what you said about the man who told you that you know uh, there's no Watiko, and how do you you have to tell him you know they, what about the opposite? Same thing. I discuss extraterrestrial life all the time, and I have people telling me, Mel, how do you prove that? There's no extraterrestrial life. And I tell them, no, prove to me that there's no extraterrestrial life. If there's life here, if there's life on this planet, then prove to me that there's no life elsewhere. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, that, that's similar. And the thing it just brings up for me, too, you see, and this is really important because what Tico, it works through the projective tendencies of our minds, through our own perceptions. Now, one way to understand what I'm pointing at, if you're in a night dream, and so say you're in this night dream, and I want to invoke the imagination right now, and, and if you're holding a perspective in that night dream, think about what the night dream is. It's just this reflection of your mind. Whatever perspective you're holding, the, the night dream, being that it's nothing other than and not separate from your own mind, has no choice but to spontaneously shapeshift and reflect back the very perspective you're holding. So if, if all of a sudden, if you change your perspective in that night dream, the night dream has no choice but to shapeshift and, and to reflect back your change in perspective. So what I'm basically pointing at is that when we hold a perspective in the night dream or in the waking dream, all of a sudden, being that this is some sort of dream also, we, the, the, the dreamlike nature of this universe will, will like all of a sudden offer us all this evidence to confirm our viewpoint which then we become even more entrenched because now we have proof that our viewpoint seems to be objectively true. And the more entrenched we become into the viewpoint, the more evidence we draw, the more evidence we draw, the more entrenched we become in that self-perpetuating feedback loop in which we've entranced ourselves by the creative genius of our own mind. You see, that process is really important to understand because then when you see that, that's to begin to snap out of the spell of Watiko. And wasn't Carl Jung that called it the shadow part of us? Yeah, yeah. And and the shadow, I mean, that's really from the psychological point of view, 
you see, because in the book I talk about, there's the, you know, there are all these different ways of understanding Watiko, the, you know, from the spiritual point of view, the mythic point of view, the archetypal, the psychological, from the psychological point of view, a really easy and succinct way of understanding how Watiko works is through the projection of the shadow. Now, Jung talks, he, he refers to the projection of the shadow as the lie. Now, interestingly, just etymologically, um, who is the liar but Satan, the devil, right? And it's interesting um, how the way this works, when we actually are disassociated from our own shadow, you know, inside of our psyche, we what happens? We split off from it and we project it outside. Now, in a dream, when we project out an energy, say if we project out our shadow in a dream, what's going to happen? But into the dream will come somebody or a group of people who will carry that that split off content. So they're like a hook that we like are able to like place our projection on, and then all of a sudden they so they are actually embodying or carrying our split off shadow and but now we have evidence that the shadow is outside of ourselves so we even more than you know have evidence to project out the shadow but the more we see them carrying the shadow the more not in a causal way but we make it more probable the more that they'll they will manifest in that shadow quality in the same way that we're all affected by each other's projections a projection you know, it's, it's, even though it's an intangible thing, it has a subtle body all its own. It, it influences us. So when somebody projects onto us this negative projection, we could, we all have experienced this. We feel that negative quality being pulled out of us. And then we actually begin to act out that projection in a way that confirms to the person who's projecting their, you know, their viewpoint. And so with the shadow projection, as we more and more project the shadow and then all of a sudden we'll project it onto the enemy or onto, you know, the terrorists or whoever it is. And then they more like will embody the shadow that confirms our viewpoint. So we become more entranced in the shadow. Then what do we do? We try to destroy that shadow out there because that's a reflection of the inner process of wanting to destroy and disassociate and get rid of the inner shadow in ourselves. That's the start of the whole psychological process. But by trying to destroy the shadow out there, we literally become become possessed by that very evil of the shadow that we're trying to destroy. So we literally then become possessed by the evil that we're trying to destroy. What I just described, that's like one very, you know, sort of apt description of how Watiko, it, it, it operates. Indeed. And I'm thinking of, of more practical terms, for example, if you and I go in a helicopter and we land somewhere in the Amazon and we land next to a tribe that has never seen you know, new world people before, and they seem to live in balance with nature and, uh, you know, they, they treat the planet the way it should be. How come they are not, uh, you know, as, as in touch as we are with Watiko? Yeah. Well, you know, no, that's true. When people are in touch with, with nature and, um, you know, and haven't fallen under the spell of the intellect and, um, yeah, there, there's a much more like, sort of like a holistic vision of of things where we under you know instead of trying to you see from the mythic point of view one way of understanding what is that it's it's like um sort of like the negative patriarchy and the negative patriarchy which is the mythic archetypal process that's underlying our world tries to dominate um other people and the environment instead of having instead of having like a relationship to it. So these indigenous people are having relationship with nature. They're not trying to destroy nature. They're, you know, or to cannibalize nature and just to take from it without giving something back. They understand that they live in like this living reciprocal relationship with nature. And, and that's to just be in touch with their own wholeness. Compare that to the, you know, to the modern industrial, um, scientific sort of like materialistic point of view that, um, you know, our modern civilization, and I use civilization in quotes, um, you know, is kind of like an expression of, you know, we live in such an incredibly fragmented, um, the whole world is in a way fragmented, which is itself, once again, 
this reflection of Watiko. So you see the point I want to make, um, cause I, I feel like I, you know, want to just, this is really important is when we're seeing the, these evil, these, these Watiko eyes, um, you know, sort of patterns in the world to understand that's out there and simultaneously reflecting how the Watiko parasite operates in our own psyche. You see, and that collapses that boundary between the inner and the outer. And that helps us to wake up to the dream, which is the very point of view that dispels Watiko. We have to take our one and only intermission, but let me just say this. I'm looking at what's happening in Turkey right now as an example of Watiko in a microcosm level. You have this this park in the middle of Istanbul, the last bastion of trees and nature for them there. And all of a sudden, the government wants to to put a shopping center or a building, and people are fighting against that. Isn't that a true example of fighting with Tico? Yeah, no, that's exactly it. I mean, what's happening in Turkey, what's been what happened in Cyprus, what's happening in Greece, what's happening all over the world are just like these outbreaks of the non-local epidemic of Watico, definitely. And it seems that Watiko gravitates to positions of power because I think it can exercise more of the virus that way. We'll discuss this when we come back because I think the most important part is to dispel Watiko. But first, we have to always identify the symptom, the, 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 the virus, the disease before we can cure it. But tell people how to get in touch with your work, how to buy your books. Yeah, for sure. Well, okay, they can just go to the website um, and it's A-W-A-K-E-N in the dream awaken in the dream.com on the website there's a ton of articles it's all for free um and then you can buy the book you can buy autographed copies um i pay for shipping and um there's a bunch of there's a this video when i did the book release um at you know wh whatever there's a bunch of audios i'm just wanting to get this information out so the only thing that costs money is the actual book And, and, you know, because I just want people so badly to, to really, you know, to, to get introduced to this material. It's close to 400 pages, folks, and it's one of those, those books that you, you start reading and you think, why haven't I been exposed to this? I'm here with Paul Levy. This is Mel Fabregas, and you're listening to Veritas. Don't go anywhere. Thank you very much for listening to the first segment of this interview. We will continue with segment two with our special guest in the Veritas member section. Just go to our website, veritasradio.com, and click on the subscribe link to listen to the rest. We'll take a short intermission, listen to some music, and we'll be right back with segment two in the member section. Enjoy. Linda Moulton Howe, and you're listening to Veritas. 